So Farida, many thanks for coming down. Over to you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and yeah, today I would like to share with you some insights from the last two years of researching, specifically how journalists use social media, uh, and then some key case studies, particularly to do with crisis communication and breaking news situations. So I'll start with the most recent, and this is not a case study that I've looked at in detail, but what I was struck by was the fact that the way in which data from Twitter um, at the point of the, the Boston bombings was being a little bit discarded as no longer so useful. So this tweet was retweeted nearly 4,000 times and it says, Twitter does its best work in the first five minutes after disaster and it's worse than 12 hours after that. So the idea that in the immediate, for that breaking moment, Twitter is still very useful, but then very, very quickly, there is a lot of noise and a lot of kind of bad data and bad information. And there was a lot of discussion about this in relation to Boston. Um, and I was particularly struck by this journalist, Simon Ricketts, who writes in The Guardian, who says, the point is perhaps that Twitter, from a news gatherer, in my experience, has very often become the quote-unquote canary down the mine. It senses the gas leak first, mostly correctly, and then it dies. So the idea that Twitter is good for picking up on something, but then becomes almost instantly useless, I thought that was really interesting. So he talks about it being a signal, a switch, a warning light that only does one job, and then it becomes largely useless. So I think one of the things that's interesting for me as a researcher in this area is the evolution of how journalists approach Twitter and the way in which it's now becoming a, a more kind of hotly debated issue around when is it useful, how quickly does it become useless, um, and how you deal with that. And so I think in terms of the work I do, I think what um, this journalist is describing, it's a single journalist manually sifting through a very, very large amount of data in real time. Right? And Boston is a, a good example of another um, event where the data is, in, is again much bigger than before. So in my work, we went from the riots to an absolute explosion um, with Hurricane Sandy, where Instagram also played a really big role and Boston. So the platform is evolving and growing in the same way journalists are having to deal with ever larger data sets in, in real time. So obviously in relation to that is the role of tools. So you have the kind of tension between an individual trying to curate in real time um, social media data and then the tools that are available to professionals, uh, including academics, to deal with that enormous amount of data. And this is a, a Dutch tool, a group of researchers I know, um, and this is Twitsident, and it's specifically tailored to dealing with breaking news and crisis communication. And one of the things that um, Twitsident does quite well is it allows you to map the tweets if they've been geo-tagged, um, and then it shows you kind of the epicenter of where something is happening and what you see in the, the kind of the pattern of the tweets is very, very quickly it starts to move out. So as soon as people understand that something's happening, the tweets are no longer necessarily coming from the location where the thing is happening. It's, you know, a global audience is retweeting, is doing something with that information. And that's where I think the issue for journalists uh, the big problem starts, you go from the first five minutes when the tweets are really coming from a very tight location to then it dispersing and, and ending up in the wider Twitter sphere. And so what I'm interested in 
in my research is this intersection between tools and humans and the human filtering and if you sort of add them together uh, what some people have started to call the human algorithm so how can you combine the curation of humans with the curation and processing of tools in real time in the era of big data so some of you may know um, a company we were just talking about um, in Ireland called Storyful. Um, and it's essentially a social media company, kind of news company, filtering um, social media data. And this is a quote from the CEO um, in a really interesting blog post that I really recommend you have a look at, called The Human Algorithm. And he said, I have absolute faith in our curators and our Storyful system in the US and in Ireland but there is simply no way they can solve the puzzle on their own. So this is really addressing this issue of what do you do with all this data. The only way a curator can ultimately sort news from the noise is to join the social media conversation which emerges from news events. So that it's a, kind of it's a dialogue, it's, you have to do more than, than simply kind of let tools loose on the data. It's not just listening, but you engage directly, openly and honestly with the most authentic voices. And then he says, of course, I have left out the most important part of this process, what we at Storyful have now come uh, to know as the human algorithm. So they are talking about the human algorithm as well, and there's various other places where this term pops up. And I think for me, it's a useful concept because it also gets away from the, I would say, the problematics with big data, which largely depend on machine processing of data. And I think when you just let machines do the work, you miss a very crucial element, which is about interpretation. And I think for news purposes, it's the interpretation and understanding the context within which that information arises that is absolutely crucial. So if we look at Twitter alone, um, around a billion tweets are sent every three days. So these are you know, very kind of large numbers. But one of the things I'm particularly interested in, in relation to news, is the fact that 5 million images are shared on Twitter every day. And when it comes to big data, images are really hard to deal with because algorithms can't deal with uh, visual information very well. So all the kind of um, textual analysis that you can do in natural language processing and, and so on, that doesn't really work for images. So images are really a kind of a category on their own. Yet the way in which we understand news and the way in which we understand and remember events is intensely visual. So if you think about an event, I, I would imagine that the first thing that pops into your head is, is something visual and, and not necessarily a text. Um, so the question for me in my research is how to cope with all that data. Both for me as a researcher, but for journalists. How, how do you deal with this? So one of the things I'm particularly interested in uh, in relation to images is the verification of, of social media images. And this is something that Storyful um, is also really interested in, and, and a, a good piece of free software is TNI, um, where you can upload an image and it will look to see whether or not it's been altered. So this is one of the things that often comes up with social media um, images. Has it been photoshopped? Has, has something been, been done to it? Do we know something about the provenance of, of this image? And this is the paper I'm writing about the small image on the left, and I'll show you a better picture. And Sometimes TNI doesn't have uh, the image you, you are looking for, so it's essentially crawling the web, and even though it has nearly 3 billion images, it doesn't always have the image that you want verified. So that, this is my first TINI uh, result that ended in zero. So this is the image that I'm uh, writing a paper about. Um, I came across this image on Facebook 
uh, in October 2011, and ever since I've been really sort of a little bit obsessed with it. I wanted to know everything about it. I think it's a very striking uh, composition. It's someone in Egypt using a placard with hashtags to, to show solidarity with the protests in Oakland and Occupy. And I came across it on, on Facebook, and I, I wanted to understand it better. And I'm, I can talk more about this in, in Q&A if you're interested in. But just to go back to story form, one of the things that their guidelines um, highlight for verifying uh, images on social media is to go through a number of steps. So if someone offers you an image claiming to be you know, the corpse of Osama bin Laden, this is a, a key example, um, how do you verify it? Right? And so one of the things is obviously who's the photographer, what can you find out about it, has the image been altered? So TinEye is, is one of the pieces of software that people tend to use a lot now. And one of the things that they always recommend is to be shown the sequence in which that image appears as part of a set of images. So you can see the image there. So um, Karim, I, I tracked Karim down on Twitter. Um, Karim Abdurradi is the photographer, and it's part of a set of images that he uploaded on Facebook. And it's part of um, a protest that took place outside the American embassy in Cairo. And the other thing that Storyful also recommends is to establish whether or not that person could have been there, right? What were they tweeting? And, and go through their timeline and actually see, are they also saying things at the scene? Is there further evidence around that image that you can collect that supports that they were actually there? And so this is a paper I'm, I'm writing based on just that one image. So the other, the other issue, um, with image sharing during crises is, of course, the problem of, of fake images. Um, and I use the, the term fake here quite, um, quite broadly, and we can, we can unpack this further. Um, but this is, this is some work I did uh, on Hurricane Sandy. And one of the things that um, tends to happen with crises, and particularly um, weather situations, is the um, use of Hollywood disaster movie um, imagery. Um, and so the image at the bottom left is a still from the day after tomorrow. Um, and people, people thought it was real, right? So um, the fact that it was being tweeted by Anonymous, I think, should have been a little bit of a clue. Um, but anyway, it's a still from, it's still from a movie, but it was doing the rents on Twitter as this is New York right now. Um, the top right image uh, is a photoshopped image. Um, and so what we saw with, with Sandy is really an explosion in fake images uh, that were doing rounds, purporting to show what was happening in New York, purporting to show this is the superstorm coming, you know, coming for New York. Um, and what started to happen, and I thought this really interesting, um, the t this Tumblr, is Twitter wrong, started to play this role of the human algorithm. So there were a number of places online where people started curating and verifying these images. So one of the things that I've um, noticed is whenever a natural disaster strikes, there's always sharks in the water, apparently. So this is, <laughs> this is a shark in New Jersey. Um, which very quickly was established to be fake. So um, you can go on the Tumblr and they will explain how they did their sort of um, image analysis and, and detective work. And often they use TINA and, and other, um, 
other ways, you know, for example, uh, ask people questions, has anyone seen this image elsewhere? Can we find where it was first used and so on? And what was quite interesting is that the bottom left image, the flooding of ground zero, everyone thought it was fake because it looked almost too good to be true. It's such an iconic space. It's such a well-known um, site. Um, and and it, it almost looked too good to be true. And, but it was actually, it was real. It was an AP photographer and it was, a, it was a real image. So what we became interested in as a group of researchers, and I did this very quickly with two Australian colleagues over a weekend, is we looked at a quarter of a million tweaks to deal with this issue of fake Sally pictures because the media started to really pick up on it. Um, and what we were interested in was to establish whether or not they were a big problem. So if you were looking at a larger data set, were these fake images so present or was, was this something the media had been picking up on because it's quite a juicy story and, and you know people really liked it. I mean, I was certainly drawn in. Um, and what we found is actually that the fakes weren't such a, a big component of the kinds of images that people were sharing. And I think it raises an interesting number of questions. And again, going back to what is shared by locals who are actually in the area, right? They're not uploading pictures of sharks swimming in <laughs> floodwaters, versus what the larger global media audience is doing on Twitter with images, purporting you know, those to be of, of Sandy. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is this issue of the long tail. Um, and I will talk a little bit more about that in relation to the riots. But what you get in, in um, distribution on the blogosphere and also in, in the Twitter sphere is you, you tend to get a long-term distribution of data, which means that a, a handful of producers, their content gets used a lot. Right? We know this from the blogosphere. Most blogs don't get read. And then there's a handful that get a high number of hits, a high audience. And what you get is a long-tail distribution. And you, you saw this also with Sandy. So there's a handful of images that get a lot of retweets. But my question is, in terms of understanding where the local images are, where are they in the tail? Right? They may only get 5 to 10 retweets or 50. So the, the memento mori is that the most visible is not necessarily most valuable or even real. Right? So then I guess the, the thing about um, what I'm interested in, in, in kind of doing this real time and, and trying to understand it, I mean, real time, I think, is, is not necessarily a useful concept because I think it's incredibly difficult to do these things real time. It's sort of shrunken down time. Um, but the insight you can gain from, from doing this more long form um, index analysis and how you can bring those lessons back into, into a kind of a shorter time frame. Um, and this is a, a kind of a long-form analysis, a project that, um, that I was involved in called Reading the Riots. And we looked at Twitter, and I did the social media analysis um, for this project with The Guardian and uh, a number of universities. It was led by Professor Rob Proctor, uh, and we also worked with Twitter directly. So one of the key things um, around the time of the UK riots, uh, which happened in 2011 for four days during August, uh, there was rioting across the UK, is there was a, a public debate, if you like, about the role of social media. So this is 2011, sort of hot on the heels of the Arab Spring, and there's a lot of discussion about the role that social media is playing in different kinds of uprisings, upheavals, um, and so on. And I suppose that in terms of the Arab Spring, 
Um, social um, networking companies or social media companies like Facebook and Twitter perhaps have less of an issue with being linked to a process of democracy, however complicated and, um, and so on the, these issues are, and whether or not social media played the role that people claim and so on. Um, but Twitter certainly wasn't uh, that keen to be linked to riots. Um, and the, the, sort of the assumption that the platform had been used to organize people to riot. So they donated 2.6 million tweets for that four-day period. Um, and I think it's important for me as a researcher to give that caveat that the, the data was donated. So the data wasn't collected um, by the research team, which of course, you know, in, in your more paranoid moments, you might think, well, what did they leave out potentially? Or, what, we, what did we not ask for because we simply didn't know? And so for me, that's, that's an important um, kind of caveat. And also, we only um, looked at uh, hashtags. So I, my estimate would be that that data set is probably 10 times larger if you weren't only looking for hashtags. Um, so these were tweets um, uploaded by 700,000 individual accounts. And what The Guardian was particularly interested in is this issue of verifying information. So they were particularly interested in the role of rumours, um, which did play quite a big role during the riots. Um, whether or not incitement took place, so whether or not the platform had been used to organise people to go and riot. And we didn't find any um, real evidence for that. What we did find, and people are quite familiar with this example, is that the platform was used for the riot cleanups, so that it was used to organise, but very much to go and clean up afterwards. And then what I'm particularly interested in was the role of different actors, uh, so the different kinds of accounts that were tweeting the riots. So these are the rumours that we looked at. There were seven different rumours, and they included um, the rumour that animals had been let loose from the zoo, that people were frying their own food at McDonald's, um, that um, <laughs> the police had beaten up a 16-year-old girl at the start of the riots, that somehow uh, the London Eye, which is um, a tourist attraction made out of metal, had caught fire and <laughs> had been pushed over. Um, that the Birmingham Children's Hospital was under attack. Uh, that the army had rolled into an area of London, and this was actually a, an image from Egypt. Um, <laughs> but someone, I, I sort of looked into it, and apparently someone sent it from um, uh, an iPhone and, and later apologized and said, well, I just couldn't see it very well. So sometimes, you know, people um, send things that they haven't really checked themselves and then it sort of goes viral. Um, and then Miss Selfridge in Manchester, which is a clothes shop and was set on fire. So this is a mix of things that actually did happen um, and, and things I, I couldn't tell you why, uh, why they started, but, but they did. And so what we, um, what we worked on with, with the Guardian Interactive team is we built a visualization uh, which has subsequently won a Data Journalism Award. Um, and what we did as, a, the, as part of the analysis is we lifted out of those 2.6 million tweets all the tweets pertaining to one of these rumors. And then we hand-coded each individual tweet three times so that you can calculate the inter-code reliability across um, the coding and what we were interested in in green is whether or not the rumor was simply being repeated, right? Were people simply pressing the retweet button or manually retweeting, but they're simply repeating the information, so they're not questioning it, they're just repeating it. 
Uh, in red, if they're questioning it, or if they're if they're asserting that it's not not true, so they're saying this can't happen, be happening because. In yellow, if they were asking, you know, is this really happening? Is the um, hospital really under attack? And then in, in grey, people were commenting. So there was a lot of commenting going on here, and I, I won't show you the, the whole sequence because I don't I don't have time. But what was interesting about the way in which this played out um, is that. About 40 minutes into this rumor, um, uh, a user called Pigs on the Wing, who's, who's actually a friend of mine, so it's very weird for me to code this data. My friends kept popping up. Um, <laughs> Pigs on the Wing um, used reason and essentially really simple logic to say this can't be happening because the children's hospital is opposite the police station. So he had no evidence. He didn't have a picture, he didn't have a link. But he had logic and understanding of the location of the hospital to suggest, well, surely if this is happening, the police would already be there because they're, they're literally opposite. And what was interesting is that Twitter believed him. And so what you see is that that um, first cascade of red is, is his information. And it took the hospital um, medical officer and local radio another hour before they said, yes, indeed, it's not under attack. So this is a really interesting example of someone, in a way, um, kind of remaining calm and just suggesting this can't be happening because and people people believing it. And um, so Twitter is also a, a very good self-correcting mechanism, and you saw this also in Boston. So even though I think it has, it's increasingly getting a bad name for a place where you know rumor thrives. It's also very quick to crush rumor, uh, and I would say much better than the mainstream media. Um, in that sense. And, and I think the way in which the mainstream media didn't verify and didn't check information in Boston um, was quite, quite a big problem. And I've seen this in earlier work as well, in, um, for example, in Hurricane Katrina. So just to say a little bit about who tweeted the riots then. So this is based on the top 1,000 users. Um, and this is simply based on mentions. Uh, so if that account was retweeted, if it was a straight mention from the account itself, if the account uh, made an app reply. So it's quite a, a blunt tool, if you like. Um, and I built a actor type um, code frame based on Gilabatan's work on the Arab Spring and it adapted it for our data set. So one of the things, because we were dealing mainly um, with UK uh, well, we, we were dealing with a UK case study. I wanted to understand the role of the UK Twitterati. And the UK Twitterati is essentially a mix of celebrities and kind of avid Twitter users um, who the independent lists as part of their top 100 Twitter users. And so what was important for the purposes of coding these different accounts was whether or not they were part of this Twitterati, because there's something also about influence and opinion leaders and how they can further um, spread information. So there were some journalists like Krishna Guru Murphy from Channel 4 and Piers Morgan, maybe not a journalist, but um, there were different media people in there and it became for us more important to code them as Twitterati because that, that was further influential. Um, the other thing that you see a lot with um, crisis events is that people will curate and set up accounts to filter information from that event. And we saw this again with the riots. So people were setting up specific riot accounts to essentially say, for all your riot-related news or information, follow this account. And people will start to make lists and 
so on. So we had ride cleanup accounts, but also accounts that would allow people to identify looters, right? Do you know this person? You know, get in touch with the police. Um, and then these, these uh, aggregator accounts. So again, we have the problem of the long tail distribution. So this is the top 1,000 mentions. And what you see is that you have at the left a handful of accounts that get mentioned a lot, and then it just trails down. And this is only the top 1,000 from 2.6 million. Right, so I'm in there as well with my two tweets. Um, I'm sort of nowhere, nowhere to be seen. And, and I think it's a problem both for, I think, journalists and also researchers that we tend to focus on the most vocal accounts. And I think that's an issue because they don't necessarily have the most valuable information. So these are all the different actor types that, um, that we came up with. They include the emergency services as well, celebrities, um, because it's Twitter, there's a lot of celebrities in there, bots. Bots play a big role on Twitter. As soon as something happens, you know, bots try to sell you vacuum cleaners um, using, using the hashtag of the crisis. Um, and you need to filter them out. Um, spoof accounts are a big problem. So what we, what we saw, and this is um, only going on the uh, most uh, the 200 most mentioned accounts, is that the mainstream media, similar to the distribution you'll see in the blogosphere, mainstream media content dominates. So in terms of um, citizen journalism and content creation and so on, the mainstream media is still the source that most people will retweet or my, most people will go to, most people will link to, and it's about 45% out of these top 200 accounts. Riot accounts also are quite popular. And also spoof accounts, even though it's um, towards the right, even though it's kind of... Uh, riot accounts? What does it mean here? Riot accounts is accounts that were either about cleaning up the riots, oh, identifying a looter, or uh, these filtering accounts specifically set up <coughs> with riot news. Yeah. So the spoof accounts are interesting because in our top 25 most mentioned accounts, we have uh, Lord Voldemort. <coughs> Um, Professor Snape, so two characters, spoof characters from Harry Potter, um, and the Queen. And this is when you really know that you're dealing with Twitter data. So what is really important is that you understand the context of the data. Twitter is used a lot by celebrities. It's used a lot in an ironic, playful way. And it's, it's unsurprising then, when people have made a career out of pretending to be the Queen on Twitter, to all of a sudden for those accounts to stop tweeting during riots. It was, you know, it was a really good opportunity for them to, to tweet in character, and that's what, that's what they did. Then, um, the other thing that I, I looked at, and I think I need to sort of wrap this up in the next five minutes. Yeah, fine, five minutes is fine. If I looked at journalists um, and how they were using Twitter, and particularly Paul Lewis and Rafi Samaya. Rafi works at the New York Times and Paul Lewis at the Guardian. And Paul Lewis was mentioned more than 30,000 times in that account, in that, um, overall um, data set, and he was the second most mentioned single account. Who was the most? Paul, sir? Who was the most mentioned? The Riot Cleanup account. Yeah. What? Riot Cleanup account. The Riot Cleanup account was the most mentioned and then followed by Paul Lewis, the journalist. So what I was interested in here, and this is a paper um, that's now been published in um, Digital Journalism, is how journalists were using Twitter as a reporting tool. So how were they dealing with um, this data in real time? And looking at different Twitter functions, how are they linking back to their own uh, news organization? 
So I'll go through this quite quickly. In terms of the data collection, I can talk a little bit more about this in the Q&A, but what I was concerned about was that the riot data that we had with The Guardian was quite uh, limited in the sense that it was only based on hashtags. And what I wanted to know was what was everything that these four journalists tweeted during those four days. Not just when they used a hashtag, but everything during those four days. And I used a tool called Snapboard to collect it. And if you're interested in doing something similar, I would now uh, advise Gritonomy because it's a much better tool and it's come out recently. Anyway, so what you see if there's four days or four peaks, clear peaks of tweeting activity of the two journalists. Um, and what you also see is uh, Paul is in, in the dark and Ravi in light grey. And Paul is tweeting a lot more. He has over 400 tweets and Ravi just under 300. And what I, what I did then, and this is really in a sort of in-depth uh, analysis, is I wanted to understand what kind of tweets they were sending. Right? Was this original reporting? Was this eyewitness accounts? Were they mentioning things? What were, what were they doing? And how were they using the different affordances of the platform? So what you see is that um, the difference between Paul and Rafi, and this is the standardized version, standardized version, is that Paul in the bottom, in the dark gray, is tweeting a lot more original content, right? So if you like, you can already kind of sense here that he's doing a lot more on-the-spot reporting using Twitter. Um, and Ravi, to the top, towards the end, is using a lot more at reply. So he's much more conversational, he's chatting a lot more um, on Twitter, which for a journalist is potentially uh, an issue. Um, then if you look at what kinds of tweets they were sending across the four days, again, Paul here, in the dark, at the bottom, sending a lot of original content, and Ravi sending a lot less original content, but again, at the top, being much more conversational than Paul. I also looked at how they used hashtags. So for um, Paul's tweets, 343 tweets contained at least one hashtag, which is 78% of his tweets, which is a really high number. So for most tweets, he adds a hashtag. And what he would typically do is add a location. So if he's in Enfield, he will say Enfield plus UK riots, which means that everyone in Enfield looking at what's going on in Enfield will pick it up. And everyone looking more generally at UK riots will pick it up. So it's, it's understanding where you find your audiences. Ravi, different pattern. He was mainly in Hackney. Um, but he only includes a hashtag 59% of the time, which means that if you are collecting data based on hashtags, you could miss over 40% of his tweets, which I think for analytical purposes is a massive problem because it tells you a very, very partial um, story then. Then in terms of the tweet content, and I'll, I'll wrap this up now, is um, in terms of what they were doing, they were both using Twitter a lot for eyewitness reporting. So they were at the scene themselves. They were going to these places and tweeting from location. Um, the other thing I was really interested in is if they were using the Twitter, uh, the Twitter sphere in terms of verifying information, right? This idea of the kind of human algorithm. Are they asking other users to help them understand what's going on? And Paul was doing this a lot, um, and Ravi not so much. But what Ravi was doing a lot was giving his opinion. Which for a news journalist in a breaking news situation is perhaps goes against a journalistic norm. I mean, that's you tend not to, to do that in a way. So in terms of reporting, Paul was saying things like, um, building in North Tottenham ablaze, young men in masks won't let me get closer, riot, and then he had a picture. 
And Ravi is saying, police have now massed dozens in riot gear, but not sure how they will break through firewall to rioters and me behind. So it's really sort of placing yourself in, in that situation. Um, Paul was asking a lot of um, help, for help. He's saying, searching for reliable accounts of alleged police mistreatment of 60-year-old girl at protests that allegedly sparked the Tottenham riots. I'm writing a piece reconstructing Tottenham um, riot. Anyone see a record of what precise time the BBC pulled out its journals? So, journals. There was a lot of kind of machismo going on about who stayed the longest in the most dangerous area. Um, and the BBC was sort of painted as sissies that they sort of pulled out of this particularly grim estate um, before Haddam. Uh, and then also requesting information through um, his um, Blackberry Message account as well. Then they were also making very explicit statements about where they were going, and I think this was done to, um, for their own safety, to specifically say, this is where I'm going, so you know where I am, or specifically saying, I'm going there with Ravi, or I'm going there with Paul. Um, in terms of link use, and I, I guess, do you want me to finish now? Because I, I can pick up a lot in the Q&A yeah, if people... Yeah, that'd be fine. Yeah. That's fine. All right. <laughs>